0: Chapter Five, Part Three of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bruce Peary. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter Five: Tendencies in American. Part Three: Lost Distinctions. This general iconoclasm reveals itself especially in a disdain for most of the niceties of modern English. The American, like the Elizabethan Englishman, is usually quite unconscious of them and even when they have been instilled into him by the hard labor of pedagogues, he commonly pays little heed to them in his ordinary discourse. The English distinction between will and shall offers a salient case in point. This distinction, it may be said at once, is far more a confection of the grammarians than a product of the natural forces shaping the language. It has indeed little etymological basis, and is but imperfectly justified logically. One finds it disregarded in the authorized version of the Bible, in all the plays of Shakespeare, in the essays of the Reign of Anne, and in some of the best examples of modern English literature. The theory behind it is so inordinately abstruse that the fowlers in the king's English require twenty pages to explain it, and even then they come to the resigned conclusion that the task is hopeless. The idiomatic use of the two auxiliaries, they say, is so complicated that those who are not to the manner born can hardly acquire it. Footnote L. Pearson Smith in The English Language, page 29, says that the differentiation is so complicated that it can hardly be mastered by those born in parts of the British islands in which it has not yet been established, for example, all of Ireland and most of Scotland. End of footnote. Well, even those who are to the manner born seem to find it difficult, for at once the learned authors cite blunder in the writings of Richardson, Stevenson, Gladstone, Jowett, Oscar Wilde, and even Henry Sweet, author of the best existing grammar of the English language. In American, the distinction is almost lost. No ordinary American, save after the most laborious reflection, would detect anything wrong in this sentence from the London Times, denounced as corrupt by the Fowlers. We must reconcile what we would like to do with what we can do. Nor in this by W. B. Yeats, The character who delights us may commit murder like Macbeth, and yet we will rejoice in every happiness that comes to him. Half a century ago, impatient of the effort to fasten the English distinction upon American, George p Marsh attacked it as of no logical value or significance whatever, and predicted that at no very distant day this verbal quibble will disappear, and one of the auxiliaries will be employed, with all persons of the nominative, exclusively as the sign of the future, and the other only as an expression of purpose or authority. Footnote. Quoted by White in Words and Their Uses, pages 264-5. to White, however, dissented vigorously and devoted ten pages to explaining the difference between the two auxiliaries. Most of the other authorities of the time were also against Marsh. For example, Richard Mead Beach. See his Vulgarisms and Other Errors of Speech, page 92 and following. Sir Edmund Head, Governor-General of Canada from 1854 to 1861, wrote a whole book upon the subject, Shall and Will, or Two Chapters on Future Auxiliary Verbs, London, 1856. End of footnote. This prophecy has been substantially verified. Will is sound American with all persons of the nominative and shall is almost invariably an expression of purpose or authority. Footnote. The probable influence of Irish immigration upon the American usage is not to be overlooked. Joyce says flatly, English as we speak it in Ireland, page 77, that, like many another Irish idiom, this is also found in American society chiefly through the influence of the Irish. At all events, the Irish example must have reinforced it. In Ireland, will I light the fire, ma'am, is colloquially sound. End of footnote. And so, though perhaps not to the same extent, with who and whom. Now and then there arises a sort of panicky feeling that whom is being neglected, and so it is trotted out. Footnote. Often with such amusing results as... Whom is your father? and Whom spoke to me? The exposure of excesses of that sort always attracts the wits, especially Franklin P. Adams. End of footnote. But in the main, the American language tends to dispense with it, at least in its least graceful situations. Noah Webster, always the pragmatic reformer, denounced it so long ago as 1783— Common sense, he argued, was on the side of who did he marry. Today, such a form as whom are you talking to would seem somewhat affected in ordinary discourse in America. Who are you talking to is heard a thousand times oftener and is doubly American, for it substitutes who for whom and puts a preposition at the end of a sentence, two crimes that most English purists would seek to avoid. It is among the pronouns that the only remaining case inflections in English are to be found if we forget the possessive, and even here these survivors of an earlier day begin to grow insecure. Lounsbury's defense of it is me, as we shall see in the next chapter, has support in the history and natural movement of the language, and that movement is also against the preservation of the distinction between who and whom. Footnote. It is I is quite as unsound historically. The correct form would be it am I or I am it. Compare the German ich bin es, not es ist ich. End of footnote. The common speech plays hob with both of the orthodox inflections, despite the protests of grammarians, and in the long run, no doubt, they will be forced to yield to its pressure, as they have always yielded in the past. Between the dative and accusative on the one side, and the nominative on the other, there has been war in the English language for centuries, and it has always tended to become a war of extermination. Our now universal use of you for ye in the nominative shows the dative and accusative swallowing the nominative, and the practical disappearance of hither, thither, and whither, whose place is now taken by here, there, and where, shows a contrary process. In such wars a posse comitatus marches ahead of the disciplined army. American stands to English in the relation of that posse to that army. It is incomparably more enterprising, more contemptuous of precedent and authority, more impatient of rule. A shadowy line often separates what is currently coming into sound usage from what is still regarded as barbarous. No self-respecting American, I dare say, would defend ain't as a substitute for isn't, say in he ain't the man. And yet ain't is already tolerably respectable in the first person, where English countenances the even more clumsy aren't. Aren't has never got a foothold in the American first person. When it is used at all, which is very rarely, it is always as a conscious Britishism. Facing the alternative of employing the unwieldy, am I not in this, the American turns boldly to, ain't I in this, it still grates a bit, perhaps, but aren't grates even more. Here, as always, the popular speech is pulling the exacter speech along, and no one familiar with its successes in the past can have much doubt that it will succeed again, soon or late. In the same way, it is breaking down the inflectional distinction between adverb and adjective so that, I feel bad, begins to take on the dignity of a national idiom, and, sure, to go big, and run slow, become almost respectable. Footnote. A common direction to motormen and locomotive engineers. The English form is slow down. I note, however, that Drive Slowly is in the taxicab shed at the Pennsylvania Station in New York. footnote. When, on the entrance into the war, the Marine Corps chose Treat Em Rough as its motto, no one thought to raise a grammatical objection, and the clipped adverb was printed upon hundreds of thousands of posters and displayed in every town in the country, always with the imprimatur of the national government. So again, American in its spoken form tends to obliterate the distinction between nearly related adjectives, for example, healthful and healthy, tasteful and tasty, and to challenge the somewhat absurd textbook prohibition of terminal prepositions, so that where are we at loses its old raciness, and to dally with the double negative, as in I have no doubt but that. Footnote I quote from a speech made by Senator Sherman of Illinois in the United States Senate on June twentieth, nineteen eighteen. Vide Congressional Record for that day, page eight seven four three. Two days later, there is no question but that, appeared in a letter by John Lee Coulter, A.M., Ph.D., Dean of West Virginia University. It was read into the record of June twenty second by Mr. Ashwell, one of the Louisiana representatives even the pedantic senator henry cabot lodge oozing harvard from every pore uses but that vide the record for may 14th 1918 page 6996 end of footnote but these tendencies or at least the more extravagant of them belong to the next chapter How much influence they exert, even indirectly, is shown by the American disdain of the English precision in the use of the indefinite pronoun. I turn to the Saturday Evening Post, and in two minutes find, one feels like an atom when he begins to review his own life and deeds. The error is very rare in English. The Fowlers seeking examples of it could get them only from the writings of a third-rate woman novelist, Scotch to boot. But it is so common in American that it scarcely attracts notice. Neither does the appearance of a redundant S in such words as towards, downwards, afterwards, and heavenwards. In England, this S is used relatively seldom, and then it usually marks a distinction in meaning, as it does on both sides of the ocean between beside and besides. In modern Standard English, says Smith, though not in the English of the United States, a distinction which we feel, but many of us could not define, is made between forward and forwards, forwards being used in definite contrast to any other direction, as, if you move at all you can only move forwards, while forward is used where no such contrast is implied, as in the common phrase to bring a matter forward. Footnote. This phrase, of course, is a Britishism and seldom used in America. The American form is to take a matter up. End of footnote. This specific distinction, despite Smith, probably retains some force in the United States too, but in general our usage allows the S in cases where English usage would certainly be against it. Gould, in the fifties, noted its appearance at the end of such words as somewhere and anyway, and denounced it as vulgar and illogical, Thornton has traced anyways back to 1842 and shown that it is an archaism and to be found in the Book of Common Prayer, circa 1560. Perhaps it has been preserved by analogy with sideways. Henry James, in the question of our speech, attacked such forms of impunity as somewheres else and nowheres else, a good ways on and a good ways off, as vulgarisms with what a great deal of general credit for what we good naturedly call refinement appears so able to coexist. Towards and afterwards, though frowned upon in England, are now quite sound in American. I find the former in the title of an article in Dialect Notes, which plainly gives it scholastic authority. More, and with no little humor, I find it in the deed of a fund given to the American Academy of Arts and Letters to enable the gifted philologues of that Sanhedrin to consider its duty towards the conservation of the English language in its beauty and purity. Both towards and afterwards, finally, are included in the New York Evening Post's list of words no longer disapproved when in their proper places, along with, over for more than, and during for in the course of. In the last chapter, we glanced at several salient differences between the common coin of English and the common coin of American, that is, the verbs and adjectives in constant colloquial use, the rubber stamps, so to speak, of the two languages. America has two adverbs that belong to the same category. They are right and good. Neither holds the same place in English. Thornton shows that the use of right, as in right away, right good, and right now, was already widespread in the United States early in the last century. His first example is dated 1818. He believes that the locution was possibly imported from the southwest of Ireland. Whatever its origin, it quickly attracted the attention of English visitors. Dickens noted... Right away, as an almost universal Americanism during his first American tour in 1842, and poked fun at it in the second chapter of American Notes. Right is used as a synonym for directly, as in right away, right off, right now, and right on time, for moderately, as in right well, right smart, right good, and right often, and in place of precisely. As in right there, some time ago in an article on Americanisms, an English critic called it that most distinctively American word, and concocted the following dialogue to instruct the English in its use. How do I get to blank? Go right along and take the first turning, sick on the right, and you are right there, right, right, right. Like W. L. George, this Englishman failed in his attempt to write correct American despite his fine pedagogical passion. No American would ever say, take the first turning. He would say turn at the first corner. As for right away, R. O. Williams argues that so far as analogy can make good English, it is as good as one could choose. Nevertheless, the Oxford Dictionary admits it only as an Americanism, and avoids all mention of the other American uses of right as an adverb. Good is almost as protean. It is not only used as a general synonym for all adjectives and adverbs connoting satisfaction, as in, to feel good, to be treated good, to sleep good, but also as a reinforcement to other adjectives and adverbs, as in, I hit him good and hard, and I am good and tired. Of late, some has come into wide use as an adjective adverb of all work, indicating special excellence or high degree, as in, some girl, some sick, going some, etc. It is still below the salt, but threatens to reach a more respectable position, One encounters it in the newspapers constantly, and in the Congressional record, and not long ago a writer in the Atlantic Monthly hymned it ecstatically as some word, a true superword in fact, and argued that it could be used in a sense for which there is absolutely no synonym in the dictionary. Basically, it appears to be an adjective, but in many of its common situations the grammarians would probably call it an adverb. It gives no little support to the growing tendency already noticed to break down the barrier between the two parts of speech. End of chapter 5, part 3